Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the latest Shiny Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Spector. With me today, as usual, is Rob Hirschfeld. Uh, good afternoon, Rob. Hello, Stephen. It's great to be back. I know. I, I feel like the last couple of podcasts, you, you snuck in a few uh, at an event I wasn't at. But uh, we're back, and uh, it's good. We have a great guest today. And we will have confusion because we have our first guest with the same name as you, Rob. So it's Rob Lalande. I think I said that right, who's a VP and general manager of NavOps at Univ- Univa Corporation. Rob, hopefully I didn't destroy all that. It wasn't bad. It was very close. I'll go with it. It's Lalonde, but uh, I get a lot of different pronunciations. It's a French name, so. I apologize, but that's not too bad. So No, so- no, that's close. It's like an A- minus or something. <laughs> so before we uh, kick off and go into all the technology and stuff, uh, we'd like to have our guest kind of, you know, take a minute and give us a little background of yourself, gives uh, listeners some, you know, they get grounded in where you've been and kind of the areas that you have expertise in. So Rob Lalonde, I'm, you know, been, I guess, around the industry for about 25 or so years now, maybe even a little longer. Started out doing development and kind of switched to the vendor side. I guess I wasn't good at development, so I ended up switching to the vendor side. I've been working in, you know, everything, mostly infrastructure type stuff. The last number of years I've been on managed data centers and now in HPC, high performance computing where the cloud is playing a really big part. So a lot of what I'm doing day to day, particularly the last few years is high performance computing in the cloud. And that's certainly some of the stuff we want to even talk about today, but that's, uh, that's my background in a nutshell. HPC in the cloud is where, is it, is it true? Like Amazon, you know, you're running an HPC style workload in, in, in Amazon rented infrastructure. Uh, ephemeral instances. Usually I think of HPC as huge, big monster data centers, right? Just crank it in 24 by seven. Yeah. And that, that's what it looked like. Uh, you know, uh, certainly even five years ago, even, even today, lots of really big on-premise bare metal infrastructure, uh, supercomputers, usually the distributed supercomputers. So it's just a, a bunch of uh, uh, racks of Intel's as opposed to the traditional uh, single machine style supercomputer, but you're right. That's that's the way the industry looked. But there's a big migration going on. It, you know, it started with things like OpenStack and building private clouds, but very much we're seeing huge migration to public cloud now. And as you said, like it's Amazon and Azure and uh, Google. And I think what our customers are learning is that that's just a a great way to get additional capacity or access to specialized resources as they need it. But what type of specialized resources are you thinking? Is that uh, GPU type type infrastructure? What's the absolutely? That's the that's the most common. So, uh, you know, people spend a lot of money on GPUs. Or they're an extremely expensive device, and they're changing all the time. So we have customers that deprovision their out of date GPUs and say, "Forget it. We're just going to burst to the cloud from now on." Could be a need for a big memory machine or a set of big memory machines for a specialized project. Could be some something that needs some SSDs and big memory, but yeah, any anything where you you need stuff that's not your standard on-premise uh, uh, sort of commodity compute. I, I can certainly see baseload compute and then you know burst the cloud, but you're not describing just burst the cloud. It sounds to me like you're talking about a, a longer a, a longer-term investment in moving steady-state HPC data analytics workloads to cloud. Um, isn't that going to get expensive though? Or, or, is, or is, are things just changing so much that you buy a machine and it's, it's not worth what it was in six months? 
Well, we, we have customers that are running all in cloud, surprisingly, but I don't think, I think you're right. It, it is expensive and that's not the model that most people want to follow. I think what they, we are seeing mostly is that burst to cloud model where they want to take the peaks off off those clusters and not provision on-premise for that, and then burst once a month or three times a month to when they need those those either specialized resources or they just need flat out more capacity. So there's kind of three reasons we see people doing it. One is just, just bursting. They can save money, they can provision their on-premise cluster for, for a smaller size and then burst when they need it, thus saving overall money, or they need specialized resources from time to time, or this mm-hmm. business resilience. They just have some kind of newfangled project you know, maybe their data center, it's a pharma company, their data center is sitting in the Boston area, but they've got a project on the West Coast and they need a, a thousand cores right away to do some specialized customer-based genomics run. Boom, go get it in the Makes cloud, sense. keep it simple. And, and I can see that because I, I know that, you know, it takes you know months for people to get infrastructure from from the need to deliver to in use. I think it's a deplorable figure, but it's it's what what I know is industry standard. So yeah, if you're going to do a job, then you're going to get it running quickly. And then do you see like there's a training we've talked to, we've talked to some other guests about the difference between training and then steady state is, or, you know, machine learning is very much about a training algorithm. It is, are, are you thinking along those modes or is there just a normal amount of analytics that you have to get done? Oh, there's really both, right? With our customers, there's there's the training, there's the the execution, and then there's the uh, you know all the other HPC workloads. So it could be the, the short answer is it's any, any of the above. It's worth taking a second and having you explain what NavOps does. Uh, you and I have been sort of yeah. talking around it, and and I've been I've been sort of poking you on use cases. Can you just lay out you know exactly how ne- what what NavOps is doing that helps customers in this situation, and then we'll we'll sort of branch from there. And maybe it'll help too if I just differentiate it from our core business. So our Univar core product is Grid Engine. It's a scheduler for distributed computing. To put it at its simplest, sort of a workload management solution that allows companies to run, you know, all kinds of workloads across this distributed architecture. We have customers running on 300,000 cores, running 7 million jobs a day with 1,000 different users, so many different workloads. And that's a scheduling component. But what NavOps Launch allows you to do is extend that cluster to be a hybrid cluster in the cloud. So it has adapters, it understands Amazon and Azure, et cetera, as APIs, and it knows how to attach to those cloud clusters and really bridge that on-premise cluster to the cloud. It has an automation engine built into it so you can build in your policies so that when a user submits some work through Grid Engine that says, I need this work run and it needs GPUs, NavOps Launch automatically gets to work spins up some GPU nodes in the cloud, attaches that to the local grid engine cluster, makes sure the data is available, and then then everything's ready to go. So it's very composable architecture. And this, mm-hmm. this cloud cluster can be shrinking and growing and adapting dynamically so that the administrator doesn't need to be sitting there going, oh, gee, this end user wants GPUs, or gee, this end user needs 100 nodes uh, in a West Coast data center. The automation rules can automatically take care of that, and based on pricing and types of workloads and all the different rules that you might build in or policies that you might build into your system, it just starts to starts to happen. It's pretty slick that way, and that's what NavOps Launch is all about. Long answer. This is an important thing. It's a little bit of a detour that I want to take because I think people underestimate the role of scheduling when they think about hybrid cloud or when they even think about grid or big data center pieces because what, what you're describing is work that is pretty ephemeral, right? I'm, I'm doing a job, the job might take, you know, 
some time, even a week, maybe longer, but the job's done, you can give back the resources. Yep. And so, so it's, it's not just this question of, you know, buy a whole bunch of servers and then run, run that, those servers forever. Um, it's, it's jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's two layers of looking at it, right? There's the job layer where you've got all these different workloads that need to run. Then there's the infrastructure layer, which provides the resources up to those, those jobs in that scheduler. And right. if you look at it, the way you just described it, Grid Engine does the jobs, NavOps Launch provides the infrastructure based on policy. These jobs aren't generic, right? You were describing different types of resources that might be necessary, a certain type of GPU or a certain type of memory, a certain type of disk as part of that mix. So, so that has to come into it also. I'm assuming that's an important piece. Yeah, absolutely. We, we can't predict what it is our customers are going to run or what they're going to need, right? And businesses are extremely diverse. You look at an automotive company with BMW as a customer and they're, you know, they're doing crash testing in one area. They're doing uh, heat dissipation analysis of brakes in another area. They're doing uh, uh, fluid dynamics modeling of airflow over the car in another area. And that, you know, those are all different types of workloads using some similar data sets, some different, but massive. And then all of a sudden you throw autonomous driving at it, which is a brand new set of data, very complex, very diverse. And you've got just got all this workload complexity uh, coming out the same cluster. So I want to come back to dry, to autonomous driving and talk through some of the edge use cases, uh, but I want to build to it a little bit because because I know that we keep talking about jobs and what I would consider traditional HPC, but machine learning is, to my understanding, machine learning is changing the face of HPC, and I'm super curious about your take on that. Yeah, absolutely. We've we've seen a lot of machine learning going on within our customer base. And I, I'll say they almost kind of did it in spite of us where we just started seeing all these <laughs> GPUs popping up on our clusters and uh, machine learning workloads that maybe evolved from some of the uh, traditional Hadoop stuff and SaaS stuff that we'd seen sort of trending towards machine learning and the customers were all of a sudden just doing all this stuff. So we started looking at it more closely. And just like I said, we surveyed our customers and found you know, that a massive shift over the last couple of years towards cloud computing. We just did a survey recently, uh, we announced it on September 18th, where again, we saw a massive shift towards machine learning. That's no surprise to people. But we did see is we, we were surveying uh, regular and, IT. And, and, and Rob, this, this, is, this yeah. is an actual survey. Yep, yep, we hired a third party. We're not the survey experts. So we hired a company called Dimensional Research who did all of the, all of the research work and the the handling of the calls and the web forums and the questions and we, we wanted to find out what was going on in the industry and we didn't want to just look at it from an HPC perspective. So they surveyed 344 IT professionals, again, not HPC, but across the board. But, you know, there were some things that weren't surprising and then there were things, some things that were really surprising. So I can certainly uh, get into those if you're, if you're interested in sort of the high level outcomes and even talk about some of the specifics if you like. That's a setup. Keep going, please. <laughs> so, so what was not news is that a lot of this machine learning stuff isn't in production yet. They're still working towards it. The number of projects that, that people have deployed and on average it's a couple of projects, but everybody's looking at growing their, their usage over the next few years. In fact, it's 96% uh, of organizations are going to grow their ML activities over the next two years. So there's really explosive growth. I don't think anybody's surprised by that. And you know, there are, there are still challenges around uh, the learning curves related to deploying all this technology, getting up to speed and 
uh, figuring out how to do it all. But the things I think that did surprise us was one, there was a real linkage to HPC. So while a lot of people maybe are looking at ML and thinking it's just a brand new space, we found that these IT professionals uh, we're coming back and saying, no, 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 we're, we have 88% of us have direct HPC responsibilities in some form. So that, that was pretty statistically significant and, and something we didn't expect, even though we have our HPC hats on most of the time. And, and but, I, would, I would say that that idea to me is propagated by the cloud discussion where it really is Amazon and Google and Microsoft have ML infrastructure they don't describe the HPC part of that infrastructure as much. And so it, it, it's felt bifurcated to me. So it's interesting to see data that says, no, this is really one thing. I mean, would you, is, that, is that sort of what you think the data is showing you, that this, the HPC and ML are, are much more of a Venn, overlapped Venn than, than you might think just reading the trade rags? Yeah, yeah, overlap from the customer's perspective, not from, like you say, the trade rags or you talk to the cloud providers or you talk to the application providers and you see it as separate and distinct and yet when you talk to the end customer, there's someone at the table in that group that's you know, running that HPC cluster or has HPC responsibilities. But I think you're bang on. So the other two things that did surprise us is one, the amount of cloud and hybrid cloud usage that the survey uh, turned over. So 44% uh, of them said they're using hybrid cloud today and 38, additional 38% say they plan on using hybrid cloud in the future. So what's that come out to? 82% of, of companies plan to use hybrid cloud for machine learning. And, you know, that, you know, we certainly see lots of people doing it just cloud only. Uh, we didn't know how much was going to be hybrid. So when you say hybrid, I, I'm assuming that, that you mean on-premises or, or in dedicated infrastructure and on in, in multi-tenant infrastructure. Do you, do you mean hybrid, like truly moving the workloads cloud to cloud? No, I wasn't. Yeah, I consider that sort of more multi-cloud, but yeah, there's a difference in terminology. I, 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 prefer, that, I prefer that distinction too. Good. So that's why I wanted to make, make sure. So people yeah, are saying, I have, a, I, have a, I have an infrastructure that does my HPC work that I'm going to jump out of the, the, the confines of my data center to do additional HPC and ML work. Is sort of what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that was another surprise. And then the other one was, and, and I guess this shouldn't have been a, so much of a surprise, but the 88% will utilize GPUs for machine learning projects. So it is very, very much tied to GPUs. And I think that ties back to maybe the HPC linkage and the cloud linkage on those three. So maybe those three takeaways are, are tied together because GPUs looks to be a, a real big part of it. So you had mentioned something about GPUs with a lot of innovation or a lot of change that, that they might not have the model GPU. How, how big of a, I, I usually think of GPUs as a, as a sort of flat resource like CPUs, but your, your comment seems to indicate that there's, there's nuance in that. Is that something people should worry about? Well, I think it's something to consider. There's certainly different classes of GPUs out there, and there's the TPUs, more oriented towards pure TensorFlow processing. So, you know, it's something to, to consider, right? It's just, you know, what class you want, because the performance differences can be very dramatic. And, you know, in this world, we're all, we're all about speed in the HPC world, and, and ML isn't any different. You want to crank it out faster, and if you can crank it out faster on a faster GPU, it might even cost you less than having it sit on a lesser GPU for too long. So um, I, that, that reminds me of early cloud stories where I, I think it was Netflix would spin up um, 100 machines and, and, and performance test them and then shut off 
fifty percent of them or more because they you know because they, they only wanted the good the fast machines. You could I guess you're saying the same thing would be true in in machine learning. Yeah, absolutely. And, and does machine learning have the same one of the hallmarks of HPC that I remember? Please tell me if my my I'm just getting old school on on HPC, but. Uh, concurrency in operations was important, right? One of the things that made cloud hard for like a Hadoop cluster is that you'd get machines with different performance characteristics and then the jobs would still finish slowly even if, you know, a couple of machines whizzed through it. Is is that still a factor? And and I guess does, does Univa have a, a story to help with that? Yeah, it really depends on the type of workload. So there's these sort of the embarrassingly parallel style workload where you know that you shard off the data and, and every computer can go off and do its work and they're independent of each other and then there's there's much more tightly coupled style workloads where they've got to be compute com, uh, communicating with each other the other nodes you know that in that scenario you need something like InfiniBand and Microsoft's got an InfiniBand offering in their cloud so you could run that style of workload there but you know most of the time there's not a lot of Interprocess and intermachine com computation or communication going on. I'll give you an example where you do use that tight coupling would be weather modeling, right? So if you're breaking off the atmosphere into chunks and analyzing part of that atmosphere and looking at what's going on, the next block over, to use a non uh, not meter non meteorological term, they, you got you got to compare what's happening beside it really to model what's happening in the weather, right? So you could see why there would be communication going on between the, the processing, where you might use something like InfiniBand to model that, because there's gotta be a lot of talking back and forth because they all they all interrelate. Where there's other types of analysis that you could do, let's say autonomous driving, where you're looking at something from one car and something from another car, and they're completely independent of each other. So you can just analyze that without any uh, inter-system communication. Do you, are there other insights that you think are, are worth putting on the table from, from the survey data? No, I think those are the big ones. I think, you know, it's, it's it's been really interesting. I think, obviously, learning a lot about what's going on even in our own customer base from this, and I think uh, there'll be more to come on this. If I was going to do machine learning or do HPC work, right, and so you're saying the cloud is safe, <laughs> start, good, start there, figure out what you need to do, buy resources, it won't bankrupt you. Um, you know, you can help with the scheduling to make sure I'm getting the right resources from the right cloud. That makes a ton of sense. You see people then repatriate back when they get a, some stable workload? Yeah, we have definitely seen that. So, you know, the way it started, let's say a couple of years ago, is everybody was on premise. And then they said, we're going to try out this cloud thing, but we're just going to take this one application and move it over and see how that works out. As opposed to trying the much more complex hybrid configuration where the clusters need to communicate and scale up and down, and there really wasn't the maturity and automation like NavOps Launch has. So it started with dedicated, then it went, it's heading towards hybrid. But we have seen in many cases where customers go, gee, now that we really understand cloud, we've got our feet wet and we are becoming experts in this, we're not just HPC people, but we understand cloud. We know what kind of workloads make most sense in the cloud and which kind of workloads don't make sense. So we have seen a repatriation of some types of workloads back to on-premise, and there's real, real examples of that. And then, but and on the flip side, they'll say, but but these other applications make more sense, or just the bursting application makes sense. So yeah, I think now it's it's more than just a philosophy of hey, let's go to the cloud. Everybody else is, and HPC was right. slow at that anyway because they had these extreme efficiencies. And you talk about general IT, they're running at 18% efficiency in their data centers, and that's even with 
uh, virtualization technologies like VMware helping them out, where our customers' clusters are running at 80, 90% plus efficiency. So they're packing these things real tight already, and that gives you a lot of efficiency that's tough to get in the cloud. And, and that's you know a hallmark of HPC that I think people forget, right, is that you, you, you do run the clusters full on as much as you possibly can. You have scheduling algorithms that let you really take advantage of that. Um, and that's, that's, that's the, it's a very different model. Um, I wonder if the cloud providers sort of look at, look at that utilization and they're like, oh, you're messing me up. I thought you were going to, uh, right. You know, a lot of, a lot of cloud is an oversubscription model or, you know, there's some basis of saying, Hey, you rented a server and you're not using that much of it. And it, so I can overpack oversell my, my hardware. You show up with an HPC job and there's no, you're going to, you're going to take every ounce of capacity that you paid for in that, in that, that work. Does that create more commercial stress for a cloud provider or are they just that big now? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think they're just so big now that they, you know, that they do have the resources available at all times. I mean, you may, you may not be able to run a million core job at uh, just before Christmas because Amazon's, you know, pretty busy in their data centers using it themselves. But generally speaking, they ha they have the resources for this stuff. Speaking of a million cores, we did spin up a million core uh, cluster pretty recently with Amazon. If you want to, if you want to talk about that at some point. Wow, how long did it take to get all those cores online? Uh, two and a half hours. So we did okay. it. Yeah, we did it. Okay. We did it in the Ireland region, and we we spun it up using NavOps launch. We had to do some uh, new capabilities to use their Spot Fleet capability to to get that kind of de deployment rate. So we enhanced NavOps launch in the process. But yeah, it was interesting because the first uh, say six seven hundred thousand cores came up in about forty minutes. But then we started getting, you know, we used up all the big machines we could find, and we were starting to get into smaller and smaller machines. So it took a little longer to break that. I think we got to a million and fifty-one thousand cores in the end, and that took, you know, that took the the other sort of just less than two hours, hour and fifty minutes or whatever. A few times that's been done. I mean, that's you know, those are some of the largest clusters in the world when you're getting a million plus. Yeah. Well, and there's also an interesting distinction, I think, between cores and machines in a case like that, right? Because in HPC, you might be able to leverage all the cores, but you're, you're really dealing with a machine entity, which is one entity. If, if that's a, I don't know how big, how big those, those core, how many cores you get on a single machine. You start dropping down into two or two to four cores on a machine, and then all of a sudden you've, you know, you've got a lot more entities to manage from that perspective. Exactly. We, we, we feel we're successful because we got a call from the Amazon support people in that region saying you're bringing, you're, you're hogging all the resources and our customers can't use it. So we knew we were successful when. <laughs> I hate to see the bill from that one though. My goodness. Yeah. Fortunately it was on uh, someone from AWS's credit card that one. <laughs> you, know, you know what's interesting? that though we've been talking about sort of what our customers are doing and they want to burst the cloud and this and that you know this this phenomenon of the cloud gives you the ability to look at problems differently so you know we came across an EDA customer recently they actually want a million core cluster to do their work so they're seeing some opportunities now for things that they could never fathom doing on-premise because you don't do this all year long but you know they, there's a few times a year when they really want to get to market fast and they want to do some simulations and testing of their uh, chipset and they, they want a million cores because they know they can get this thing done in you know a few days and then they're out and that's you know that's huge better advantage huge time to market if you run that on their on-prem cluster which is a tenth of the size you know it's a long long time to to get that done 
That makes a lot of sense. That's a good, that's a good reason to use the shared infrastructure. That's exactly the type of, of application for it. Yeah, I think we'll see more of that. So we've been sort of hinting at autonomous driving, which is clearly a machine learning application, tons and tons of data. How do you see this playing into this, this broader marketplace? Absolutely. I think, I think that's interesting because it spans across different technologies. And you brought up earlier before we were online about, you know, uh, edge devices and how does the edge fit in. And obviously a, a car, an automobile that's out there being tested or driven is, is pretty far out on the edge. But uh, every car manufacturer, at least the, everyone that I've come across these days, is, is working on an autonomous driving project in some form, sometimes in collaboration with, with others, but certainly big, big projects with massive amount of data sets that they've never managed. So one right. cloud is a consideration because it gives them that compute and that storage and the ability to go to market much quicker than if you had to be unboxing servers and racking and stacking and such. But I think the other interesting element of autonomous driving is that it spans a lot of different types of workloads. So there'll be the traditional HPC style workloads. There'll be lots of ETL style workloads for just getting the data into place and aggregating the data and figuring out how to make sense of that data. Then there's the traditional batch workloads and then there'll be all kinds of ML applied to that, whether that's big TensorFlow models or what have you, training models, uh, execution, all those types of things. So yeah, it's, it's just a real diverse set. And that's where you'll see something like Grid Engine and, and Kubernetes living side by side on a cluster, hopefully in harmony. When you see these autonomous vehicles, do you imagine that most of the processing is done on the car? Do the cars become mini data centers or are we offloading data into regional data centers for analytics or sending it all back to the cloud? What's the mix? From what, from what I've seen, it, it's offloading the data for the most part. You know, I don't think, you know, to, could be talking out of school here, but I don't think they're doing a ton of pre-processing on the car itself. Most okay. of it's going up to the center. They, they, may, they, may, they may do some pre-processing regionally. I haven't seen that yet. Mostly it's coming back to one central database for its processing. Wow. That's, that's, that's a lot of data to ship through traditional ingress and egress just yeah, to capture man. data. Yeah, and I could so, be wrong. There might be some of that happening on the car. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that element. So we, we've had some other uh, podcasts where we've talked about machine learning on the car to, to figure out what data to forward. And then the other thing that we see with Edge is this idea that IT infrastructure at the Edge, where you have high bandwidth connection, can do some of that aggregation and post-processing and things like that. You're, yep. you're describing you know, a need for ETL and figuring that's an ETL function, I guess where you're, you're limiting the amount of data that's getting forwarded through the system. And you know, it's I important. think maybe as people start doing this and the, and the data sets get larger and larger, AKA more and more automobiles feeding data, they may find out there's a need to either do it regionally or even, even something on the automobile. If, if, if I could digress to a different type of example, we have a really Please. cool customer that does uh, oil and gas exploration. Uh, so they've got these ships that are, dragging these sonic booms around the ocean. It's about one kilometer wide and 16 kilometers long. And it's, a, it's a, a, an array of sensors dragged behind this big ship. And they're setting off these sonic charges that bounce sound waves off the ocean floor. And all this data is coming back up to identify the topology and density of the ocean floor so that they can identify, guess what, oil. 
all that data is, you can imagine the vast amount of seismic data coming off that array. That goes onto the ship and they do pre-process that on the ship with a small grid engine cluster to get the data to a size that they can ship it up with satellite back to their Houston data center where they can actually do some more analytics and work on that data without the vast size and actually, you know, hopefully uh, find, find some oil wherever they happen to be looking. But yeah, there's, you just could not ship that original seismic data up by satellite. It's just too fast. That, that to me is a great example of an edge infrastructure, um, right? It's, it's a, you're using traditional IT tools uh, yep. and you're doing the pro, you know, to do localized processing and then you're probably sending it up and then doing additional processing, but you've got to have some type of IT infrastructure. Do you have a feel for what extent infrastructures like that are going to be balanced with GPU and CPU? Do you have a prediction on that? I think at the back end when they're doing the actual modeling and machine learning, we're seeing probably 60-70% of our customers now using GPUs, 20-30% of their workloads. That's really rough, I'd say. I wouldn't say that's a formal survey, but it's sort of direction what we're seeing. So it's becoming more and more part of that processing. It makes sense. I think if you look back at what you were talking about with the survey, the, the, the blending of ML and HPC seems like the trend line. So we're going to see more and more mixed-use applications would be a, something I would expect. You had mentioned Kubernetes in the mix. You and I met uh, originally in the Kubernetes community. Last, I think the last time we had a long conversation was in Austin at, the, at KubeCon, which is a shame for us to go that long. But I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, where where you see that fitting in within this HPC world, because it's I don't see it quite yet, but maybe you have a better perspective. Yeah, I would say it's more the customers that are doing stuff a little bit more out on uh, the leading edge, where we're seeing more Kubernetes and HPC computing on Kubernetes. So we have customers that are putting Grid Engine in containers and running that on a Kubernetes cluster to get the best of both worlds. So they have their DevOps microservices stuff running on Kubernetes. And then as part of this cluster, they have a subcluster banging out all kinds of HPC jobs. And when you containerize Grid Engine in Kubernetes and let it do its thing, it can be running containerized workloads and uncontainerized workloads in that Kubernetes cluster. And that can be scaling, auto-scaling up and down using your traditional Kubernetes capabilities. So you actually have this sort of subcluster model that's an HPC cluster living inside a Kubernetes, a broader Kubernetes cluster. And that, that's pretty cool stuff. So would you actually mark the machines from a Kubernetes perspective as not schedulable at that point so you don't have resource contention or you just sort of let the Wild West figure it out? Uh, no, gen generally speaking, we'll, we'll take all of those nodes for the, the HPC portion. Right, but then they're still Good. containerized, so it's you've you sort of got you've got the best of both worlds from that perspective. It's an interesting mix. Yeah, right. and I I know that you know, one of one of the benefits that you were trying to bring to the Kubernetes community was scheduling. It's one of the reasons that I you know I think scheduling and what what you do is interesting. I haven't seen scheduling attract that much attention from a Kubernetes perspective, to tell you the truth. Um, no, and I, I think the. No, I think the Kubernetes schedulers uh, come a long way and it does, does great things. I think where you see our NavOps command product being more relevant is, is in that HPC context where you really want to partition off your cluster and have it dynamically scaling up and down your HPC context within that 
and I think that's that's where it makes a ton of ton of sense, and that's where that's where we have our customers using NavOps Command and Grid Engine together. That makes sense, and and I've I've seen similar things where people want to talk about virtualization, and so Kubernetes becomes the underlay, like what you're describing, to something else, and then you can say, yeah, Kubernetes, don't stop scheduling these nodes. I'm using them for something. And then, then you sort of have the ability to use Kubernetes and the primitives and APIs for Kubernetes to then deal with the underlay, the, sort of the control yep. substrate. And so, so you're saying that yes, that that's you're seeing the same type of pattern from an HPC ML perspective. Yeah, and you know, I think there's lots of cool HPC things just happening natively on on Kubernetes uh, these days. You know, the uh, the Kubeflow project that uh, you know, enables TensorFlow on, on Kubernetes is, is pretty cool. And clearly that's HPC and that's not running with an HPC style scheduler. That's just running in, in Kubernetes and scaling up and down. So I think there's, there's some cool things happening there as well. You know, we've seen people doing some genomics work on Kubernetes with containers too. So when they're doing that type of work with containers, I mean, they're not, it, there's, it feels to me like there's still not a control of how much resource they're using. You know, you could you could definitely flatten a cluster that was doing work otherwise if you spun up some HPC work in just a Kubernetes cluster. I, I don't, you know, are, am I missing some limiting fact, some some throttling capabilities or some some you know noisy neighbor awareness? Well, I, I think I think Kubernetes is great at what it's designed for, but if you do what we're trying to do with our customers, which maybe has a thousand pe different people submitting different kinds of workloads to that cluster. You know, there's just there's just not that richness in the scheduling layer with these jobs that are coming and going and the different types of workloads, right? So that's where, you know, we have, you know, 20 years of policy built into our system to allow you to schedule in you know, umpteen different ways to use a technical term, right? So that's Kubernetes uh, <laughs> is great if you've got got uh, people doing similar things on the cluster and it's not changing dramatically, but throw a thousand people or throw seven million jobs a day at a, at right. a Kube cluster. You know, that, that's not what it's designed for. Kubernetes is fantastic, but it's not designed for that. And, and to me, there's an underlying assumption that we hit earlier in the conversation, which is HPC assumes I'm going to run 90% capacity on my system and there's very little slack <laughs> for, for me yeah. to take on a job ad hoc, right? It's, it, you need to know what's coming. You need to prioritize. You need to, you need to figure that out. If you're, if you're in an IT mindset, and most of your systems are 20% utilized on a good day, then you don't, you know, you're never worried about spinning up a new microservice because there's so much excess uh, capacity in the system. You're much more worried about a down server than a busy server. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah, you got it. You're oversizing your, your clusters probably significantly in anticipation of increased load as you grow. And uh, yeah, Kube doesn't generally have that, that problem. I think that's a really good way for people to sort of think about it. And something I haven't heard, you know, discussed as much is is what what's, what are these some of these very fundamental assumptions that that we make as we start building these types of workloads? And your perspective is really valuable here because you're talking to people who have workloads that are, you know, they're not microservices. You you didn't say microservices even once <laughs> in this conversation. Yeah, I think that's that's fantastic and important. So Rob, thanks for joining us today with Rob Hirschfeld. So we had double Robs today. If people that are listening want to learn more either about yourself, uh, where you work, your company, how should they reach out to you and follow you? They can just reach out to Univa.com or they can, they can certainly reach out to me by email, arlalone at Univa.com. I'm happy to, uh, 
happy to chat and I appreciate uh, talking to you both. Always fun to talk, uh, catch up, Rob. And nice to meet you, I'd love to. I'd love to see where you've been going with this because I, I think that these are important things for people to understand. Hard problems to solve.